I wonder if you've ever taken part in a treasure hunt. You know, you find a, a clue written on a scrap of paper, and that clue leads to another clue and so on, until you find the prize at the end of the treasure hunt. Maybe you can vaguely remember doing something like that as a child. Well, John's gospel is a bit like a treasure hunt. Throughout the gospel, John gives us a series of clues, what he calls signs. And each sign is further evidence of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Each sign reveals Jesus' divinity and moves us a little closer to his death and resurrection. We're looking at the first of these signs today, the occasion when Jesus turned water into wine. Uh, The second sign comes in chapter 4 when Jesus heals an official son. Uh, These two signs are pointed out to us. John refers to them explicitly as signs. Uh, But from then on, it's down to us to spot the signs as we go. Now, we'll be studying John's gospel for uh, a few weeks, and I'd really encourage you to read it in its entirety for yourselves, looking for the signs as you go. Uh, For John, these signs are the points where heaven and earth intersect with each other. Uh, They, if you like, provide a sneak preview uh, to God's kingdom. This first sign, uh, the turning of water into wine, is Jesus' first miracle and the beginning of his public career. Now, I think we could be forgiven for thinking that this is rather an odd miracle to kick off with. Jesus is the man whose identity is God. Wouldn't we expect him to make a bigger statement? After all, this was his first miracle. Wouldn't it have been better to uh, right some wrong or avert some disaster, to uh, raise the dead or calm the storm? Wouldn't that be a more impressive way to begin his public ministry? Wouldn't that reveal his agenda more clearly? Don't hear me wrong. Turning water into wine is impressive. It's a miracle. The disciples believed because of it. But let's say you were going to fabricate a story about Jesus' life. You'd never choose this to be his first miracle, would you? But John didn't invent this story. He simply recorded it. God chose this to be Jesus' first miracle. And as we'll see, he chose it for good reason. But before we get into that, we need to understand the context. So uh, Jesus is at a wedding with his disciples and his mother is there, probably his siblings as well. Uh, They're at a wedding in Cana. Now, Cana would have been uh, a very small place with perhaps no more than uh, a few dozen inhabitants. Uh, It was only about 15 kilometers away from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Uh, A wedding in a place like Cana would have been a big deal. It would have been the event of the year. The whole community would be invited, as well as close friends and family from surrounding communities, uh, towns and villages and so on. The couple getting married would have been engaged for about a year, uh, during which time they would have lived with their respective parents. The groom's responsibilities included uh, preparing, maybe even building a house for them to live in, and the groom would have been responsible for paying the full cost of the wedding, which could have lasted up to a week. Uh, This was the groom's opportunity uh, to prove that he had the means to take care of his wife for the remainder of her life. And at this particular wedding, at some point, the wine ran out. This would have been a huge 
social embarrassment, particularly for the groom, but also for the bride and for both their families. Uh, We don't live in an honor-shame culture. So it's hard for us to understand just how humiliating, stigmatizing, and shameful this would have been. Probably the whole community would see this as a very bad omen for the couple's future. It would be a terrible start to their married life together. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, is aware of what's happened. The happy couple are facing total humiliation. And so she goes to tell Jesus that the wine has run out. Was Mary expecting Jesus to perform a miracle? Probably not. After all, this was Jesus' first miracle, but there can be no doubt Mary knew that Jesus was special. Remember the uh, visit from the angel Gabriel, the virgin birth, the shepherds, the wise men, the flight to Egypt. Remember when she found Jesus, age 12, uh, in the temple discussing theology with the teachers, and they were amazed at his wisdom. Uh, Mary was in no doubt uh, about the fact that Jesus was special. Who do you think Mary went to when there was a problem? I mean, her eldest son, Jesus, is God. He's the wisest, most loving, self-giving, resourceful person that has ever lived. Uh, I don't think we should be surprised that Mary would go to Jesus expecting some kind of a solution. Well, Jesus does indeed provide that solution. And there's no doubt that it's an act of love and compassion towards this couple whose wedding is about to be tainted by this highly embarrassing situation. But this miracle is a sign that points to a much deeper truth, and that's what I want to focus on today. And there are three things in particular that I want to consider. Our condition, Jesus' vocation, and history's culmination. That's a bit of a mouthful. Don't worry if you can't remember those uh, exactly. But firstly, our condition. As we've seen, running out of wine at a wedding uh, was a serious problem that would bring shame on the bridegroom and his family. Uh, Of course, everything about this problem is very specific. It's a particular problem that occurred to a particular bridegroom at a particular time in a particular place. Now, I'm sure in the history of the world, this kind of situation has occurred innumerable times. Uh, But it's certainly not a universal experience. It hasn't happened to me, and I doubt that it's happened to any of you. However, there is one aspect of the bridegroom's experience that is universal. Every human being who has ever lived has experienced this. And I'm talking, of course, about shame. We can all identify with shame. Now, before I go any further, I want to differentiate between two sorts of shame. The first is the sort we feel when uh, we're in the wrong and we know it, when we've sinned. The second uh, sort of shame is the shame that we feel when someone has sinned against us, whether it is in abuse, infidelity, slander, and so on. I'm not talking about that kind of shame. Uh, that's the shame that uh, uh, that's when we feel the shame that the perpetrator ought to feel. Uh, that's different. I'm talking about the shame that follows from our own sin and wrongdoing. I recently read an interesting article from a psychologist who described shame like this. She said, uh, shame is the feeling that there is something basically wrong with you. And she saw this as a very negative and dangerous thing. In fact, her conclusion was that we need to love and accept ourselves for who we are 
and we mustn't give feelings of shame a looking. Now, I agree, uh, absolutely, we should love ourselves. As creatures made in the image of God, we have intrinsic value and worth. But what if there is something basically wrong with us? If that's true, then it's not so easy just to brush off shame, is it? We've all experienced shame. I mean, who can honestly say they've never asked themselves any of these questions? Why did I react like that? Why did I behave that way? Why did I say those things? Why do those thoughts keep popping into my head? Why can't I stop doing X, Y, or Z? The Bible teaches very clearly that there is something wrong with all of us. There is something wrong with humanity. And that something is sin. Human beings are deeply flawed and broken. We recognize this in ourselves, and it leads to feelings of shame. Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi war criminal who evaded capture until 1960 when the Israeli secret intelligence service, Mossad, caught up with him in Argentina, and he was subsequently put on trial. Uh, one of the key witnesses was a Jew by the name of Yehiel Deneur. Now, at a certain point in the proceedings, the witness, Deneur, came face to face with Eichmann, who was on trial. And Deneur broke down. He collapsed on the courtroom floor. He literally had to be carried out. And Deneur, the witness, was later interviewed on a program called 60 Minutes by a man named Mike Wallace, uh, who showed him the footage of himself collapsing on the courtroom floor. And he said, well, what happened? Were you overcome with hatred? Was it post-traumatic stress disorder? Uh, did you have a breakdown? What happened? Uh, Deneur's answer is actually quite disturbing, and it points towards the reality of the human condition. Deneur said, when I walked in and saw him, I suddenly realized that he was no demon or superman. He was an ordinary human being, exactly like me. And I suddenly became terrified about myself. I saw that I'm capable of the very same things. Evil is not the preserve of those we like to demonize. It's present within our own hearts. And so shame is a universal human experience. Now, if I stop there, it would all be rather depressing. Uh, We're right to feel shame because of sin in our hearts. That's not in itself a very uplifting message, is it? Uh, But if we go back to the passage, we see that Jesus took the bridegroom's shame away. And Jesus does the same for us. He removes our shame, uh, whatever its cause. And this brings us to Jesus's vocation. When Mary told Jesus that they'd run out of wine, he replied, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. To which Mary replies, well, she doesn't reply. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Mothers can be quite hard to divert from their course, can't they? When I was growing up, we had a a standing joke in our family about my mother dishing up second portion. She'd say, would you like some more? Uh, But the, the, the second helping was already on your plate before you had time to answer. And I think maybe something similar happening here with with Mary. But why did Jesus say, my hour has not yet come? We see this phrase several times in John's gospel. My hour has not yet come. Or his hour had not yet come. Until finally in John 12, 23, Jesus says, the hour has come. By which he means the hour of his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. 
So Mary tells Jesus that they've run out of wine, and Jesus says, woman, why are you telling me this? I'm not ready to die. That's effectively what he's saying. An overreaction? Not at all. Jesus is looking beyond the immediate situation. He's thinking, I have come to take away their shame, but I'm going to have to die to do it. Jesus sees the real problem, and he sees the only real solution. Human beings are out of sorts with God. It is, I think, impossible to read the Bible without reaching that conclusion. And in the Old Testament, they had rights and regulations to convey the fact that God is holy and we are flawed. There is something wrong with us. If we are to have a right relationship with God, we must be purified, cleansed of our sin. The Jews had all sorts of purification rights, especially when it came to food. Hence, there were six massive stone water jars in the corner at this wedding in Cana. And verse 6 says, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing. This was all about them cleansing themselves. Uh, Jesus' use of these jars is a sign that the old Jewish system, with its laws, rights, uh, regulations, uh, was merely a sign and a symbol pointing forward to the way in which Jesus or God ultimately intended to, to, to bring purification, not just to Israel, but to the whole of humanity. Now, in our culture, we don't have purification rituals, uh, but I think we do try to purify ourselves. Have you ever wondered why being well thought of is so important to us? We long for other people's approval, don't we? Because if other people approve of us, well then, maybe there's nothing wrong with us after all. We work and strive to achieve and accomplish as if our skill, ability and intelligence can make up for our moral deficit. We want to look good and be healthy as if our physical appearance and condition can remedy the sickness in our hearts. We want the perfect uh, house and garden and car because then we'll look respectable. We can be like the Pharisees to whom Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Of course, there's nothing wrong with working hard, taking care of our appearance, living healthily, or looking after the things we have. In fact, I'd want to argue that we should do all of those things. However, we need to understand that none of them will purify us, just as the Old Testament purification rituals didn't really work. We cannot atone or make amends for our sin. We cannot remove, delete, or expunge our shame. Only Jesus can take away our sin and shame. And he did when the hour came by dying on a cross. That was his vocation, and Jesus was acutely aware of it right from the very beginning of his ministry. So Jesus tells the servants to fill these stone jars full of water and he transforms it into wine. It is deeply significant that Jesus' first miracle was one of transformation. Now turning water into wine is clearly something that only God could do. I recently saw a debate involving the well-known atheist Richard Dawkins and he was adamant that turning water to, into wine is scientifically impossible. Well, I'm glad he reached that conclusion because that is the point. It is scientifically impossible, uh, and uh, that's why it proves, along with multifarious other proofs, that Jesus was and is God. He's divine. Verse 11 says, 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through, through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. But there's also a deeper significance to this. If Jesus can transform water into wine, how might he transform us? Well, for a start, as we've said, he can take away our shame and replace it with the joy of knowing that we are truly forgiven. If we put our hope and trust in Jesus, then our sins are blotted out. We don't need to purify ourselves. We don't need to win the world's approval. But we should take note. The water was only transformed into wine when the servants did exactly what Jesus told them. You remember Mary saying, do exactly what he tells you. And they did. And if we want to see transformation in our lives, we must do what Jesus tells us. We must live in obedience to Christ. This miracle doesn't just speak to us about our individual transformation. It also points forwards to the transformation of all creation. And this brings us to the last of the things that I'm going to talk about today that is revealed by this miracle. History's culmination. Where is everything headed? We recognize, don't we, that this world is not as it should be. We only have to turn on the news for five minutes to know that all is not well with the world. But the Bible points forward to a time when creation will be renewed, a time of peace when God will dwell with his people. Our reading from Isaiah this morning points forward to something known as the Messianic Banquet. And this symbolizes the peace, joy, and celebration that we'll experience as God's people when creation is set right. Listen again to verse 6. The Lord Almighty will prepare a rich a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. It's not hard to see the connection between a wedding, it's a, a, an occasion of great joy and celebration, and the messianic banquet that Isaiah is speaking of. This wedding is a sign and a foretaste of what's to come. Isn't it fitting that Jesus' very first miracle should point forwards to the culmination of history as we know it. When the wine ran out, Jesus provided more. And not just any wine, but the best of wine. And this is the last thing that anyone would have, have expected. In verse 9, the master of the banquet says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This reflects the spiritual reality of our lives as Christians. As I said to the children, the best is yet to come. Many in our culture think the opposite. They think this life is all there is, and so uh, we've got to make the most of it, pack as much in as we can, uh, because uh, when we die, that's it, nothing. Most teenagers seem to think that life ends at about 40. Well, yes, we should make the most of this life. Absolutely we should. We should live it to the full. But we also look forward with hope to a new creation that's been completely healed of the symptoms of sin. A place where we enjoy an unhindered relationship with God forever. Jesus, of course, is the true master of the banquet, the Lord over all creation. So this is the first sign in John's gospel, a transformative miracle that 
takes away the shame of this newlywed couple, probably a pair of teenagers. Uh, It's an act of love and compassion, but there's far more to it than that. It points to the shame caused by sin that every one of us experiences. And Jesus' vocation to remove that shame through his sacrificial death on a cross. It points to Jesus' power to transform not just our individual lives, but the whole of creation. And perhaps most importantly, it points forward to the end game, the heavenly banquet at the end of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we marvel at the miracles that were performed by your son, Jesus. And we pray that you'll continue to help us to understand the, the deep meaning and significance of each one of them, the, what they point to. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that uh, you do take away our shame. You blot out our sin and our wrongdoing. We thank you, Father, that you do transform our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that through us you'll transform uh, not just the life of this church, but the life of this community. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that the best is yet to come. That you will renew and restore this creation, make it perfect once again. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the opportunity to partake in that new creation. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.